Anyone know where this is? Anyone hazard a guess? It's a bit of a challenge. It's not one for the children, this one. Definitely for the adults. Anyone know where that is? More specifically? Vesuvius. Yes, very well done. I'm impressed. Mount Vesuvius. Uh, We went on holiday there last year, and it really is quite stunning how... Uh, Mount Vesuvius just dominates the surrounding bay of Naples. And of course, it's the source of one of the most famous natural disasters in human history. In 79 AD, around 1pm, Vesuvius exploded with catastrophic force, shooting ash and rock 21 miles into the air. As you can imagine... Panic gripped the bustling Roman towns that surrounded Vesuvius, including the famous Pompeii. Then the ash cloud descends, shrouding them in daylight darkness. For hours, pumice falls relentlessly, blanketing everything. Streets, homes, even the sea. As a result, an apocalypse unfolds. Children screaming, dogs howling, lightning and fire flashing above them. And naturally, all are confronted with a dire choice. Do we hide in the cellar or run to the sea? Archaeology shows us that people tried both. Some attempt to load their carts and head to the sea, but they soon discover that it's impossible to wade through the pumice. Others hide in the cellar. But the growing weight of rock on people's houses meant that roofs started to fall in and collapse. For several more hours, Vesuvius then lets out... uh, After several hours, Vesuvius then lets out one final roar. For down the mountain comes a pyroclastic surge, an almighty wave of fire and rock racing down towards those who are still alive. At that point, one thing is very clear. It doesn't matter what decision those scared and exhausted people made. They were all completely helpless, completely powerless, completely inadequate to prevail against the power of Vesuvius. There was nothing they could do. Then, as the flow hit them, everyone, every living thing died instantly. Now, I think I'm on safe ground to say that none of us have experienced a situation quite like this before. But I wonder, when was the last time that you felt completely powerless, completely helpless? Perhaps in contrast to something that just felt so powerful and overwhelming. When you felt weak and inadequate. When you've got nothing left to give and you don't know where to run or hide. Some of us will have felt that that this week. Or maybe you're feeling it even now, in your job situation, in your closest relationships, in your parenting, or even in your Christian witness. We might be feeling that in any number of uh, things, and the feeling is real. And we struggle with it because sometimes it's not our fault. 
and our sense of security is taken away from us. And when it is our fault, we don't like having our weaknesses exposed, do we? Either way, we don't like uh, the feeling of not being in control. And we don't like the feeling of not being able to cope on our own. Naturally, we therefore all respond in those situations in different ways. Some of us keep moving, hoping that in our own strength, uh, relying on our own reason and willpower, those things will get us through. Others of us just hide in the cellar and just let the fear and despair overwhelm us. But at the end of the day, the result is the same, isn't it? Because we don't possess the power to control every aspect of our lives, we will never truly shake off that feeling of weakness and inadequacy. And because we don't like it, we assume weakness is therefore something to be avoided. But the good news is, Jesus disagrees. In the miracles that we've looked at so far in the series, his focus has been on, Jesus' focus has been on the crowds, on individuals, on the religious leaders. This afternoon, his focus is on his disciples. Why? Well, he wants his disciples to know who he is and to trust him in their weakness. Because through their weakness, his power will be on display. And I pray that today we will know those things too, in a very real way with the Spirit's help. For most of us, these two, um, uh, these two miracles will be very, very familiar. In a single 24-hour period, we have a daytime miracle involving food and a nighttime miracle involving water. But through them both, we'll see three things. We'll see Jesus' compassion, the disciples' weakness, and Jesus' power. Let's jump in with the first miracle. For context, earlier in chapter 6, we see Jesus send out his disciples, two by two, and he gives them authority to preach, he gives them authority to cast out demons, and he gives them authority to heal the sick. And then here in our passage this afternoon, we see them return to Jesus, and they tell him all that they've done. As you can imagine, they must be absolutely exhausted, but then also buzzing by all that they've seen and done. They would have done incredible things. And if we were them, we'd probably be feeling pretty good about ourselves, wouldn't we? But to their dismay, the crowds descend on them. Now, Jesus knows that the disciples are tired and hungry, and the crowds just aren't letting them rest or even eat. So what does he do? He has compassion on them and initiates a plan to take them by boat to a quiet place to recover. Unfortunately for the disciples, and somewhat impressively, the crowds work out where they're going and are waiting for them when they arrive. Now, if we were the disciples, we'd probably be thinking, oh, come on, please give us a break, will you? We're exhausted. And we'd be tempted to think that Jesus was feeling the same thing because it was his plan, plan that was thwarted. But how does he respond? Verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them 
Why? Let's read on. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. At first glance, Mark's description of the crowd just seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? But it is dripping with Old Testament significance, as God often describes his people as sheep. Rewind 14 centuries, we see God lead the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery of Egypt. Then, in Numbers 27, he tells Moses, who was once himself a shepherd, to be the one who will lead them out and bring them in. So the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. However, 800 years later, Israel's leaders were looking out only for themselves. They had failed as shepherds. So God speaks out against them in Ezekiel 34, saying, You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And then a few verses later, he promises that one day he himself would be their shepherd. Then, fast forward 600 years, and here in this passage, we find Jesus looking out over a wandering and lost crowd on a hill. And not just seeing their weakness, but seeing the cause of their weakness. You see, they needed a shepherd who was selfless and powerful enough to know them, to feed them, to lead them and protect them. And so do we. Deep down, we all want to be known. We all want to be fed. We all want to be led. We want to be protected. Because without those things, we feel weak. We feel lost and insecure. Out of compassion for this crowd, his immediate answer to their need is to feed them. But he doesn't give them physical food yet, but spiritual food, verse 34. So he began teaching them many things. This is what good shepherds do. They teach, serving the word of God. And as Jesus is under shepherds in training, this was a prime lesson for disciples. However, the disciples have other priorities which Jesus patiently uses to show them their weakness. Let's look down at verse 35. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now the crowd can't get enough of Jesus, but clearly these weary disciples have haven't, has had have had enough of them. But with no nearby bakeries, it's a fair comment, right? It's completely feasible to imagine Jesus to respond to them saying, yep, I've heard you, you're right. I know you're tired and the people need to eat. Send them on their way. But Jesus has other ideas and says to them, verse 37, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. The danger of knowing these stories well is that they can often lose their impact. Because what Jesus is asking them to do is completely impossible. And they are completely inadequate for the task. I wonder if you can relate to that. Has anyone given you a completely impossible task? Perhaps out of ignorance, 
a boss setting you a deadline that you can never meet. Or perhaps out of desperation, a loved one who is suffering and who pleads with you just to take it away or to go back in time and change the past. But Jesus is neither ignorant nor desperate. He's patient. And what he's doing, he's asking for the impossible to see if they will trust him in their tiredness and weakness. Sadly, they instead respond with more than a little hint of sarcasm, saying it would take about eight months' wages to pay for it. Now, to put it in perspective uh, for us, based on the UK, um, average UK salary, eight, month wage, eight months' wages would be around £22,000. 22k for one meal. Now, when we hear that, it makes us think, well, surely the disciples again have a fair point, right? But Jesus continues. Verse 38. How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. So, oh, yeah. uh, so they... Uh, so not only are the disciples completely inadequate for the task, they also collect a completely inadequate amount of food. Now the, the crowd must have really left in a hurry because only one little boy remembered his pat lunch. <laughs> but then we see Jesus' power. All four gospel writers tell us that there were about 5,000 men, but it's likely that there would have been thousands more women and children. Unfazed, Jesus directs them to sit on the green grass. Then he takes this packed lunch, he prays, breaks the bread, and distributes it through his disciples. And we're then told that they all ate and were satisfied. Clearly it's a miracle and although the molecular process of how the, flu, the food multiplied remains a mystery, what's striking is that the focus here isn't actually on the miracle, but on the one who worked it. It was Jesus who provided abundantly, so much so that there were 12 baskets left over. But have you ever wondered about this, power, this miracle, that why Jesus, as the creator of the universe didn't just make the food appear out of nowhere, uh, out of thin air, in front of each member of the crowd. He could have done that. Sometimes if you want a job doing properly, you do it yourself. If I want to do some DIY, I don't ask my two-year-old to help me. He'll only slow me down. This means something else is going on here, surely. Mark normally records people's reactions to Jesus' miracles, but there's no mention of that here, is there? It seems like the crowd are almost unaware of what's going on, that there's a miracle taking place. Which means this isn't necessarily a spectacle, but a lesson. Because Jesus didn't need his disciples. He didn't need them. And Jesus didn't need the packed lunch. And yet, and this is, this is mind-blowing, in his kindness, he takes this group of inadequate disciples and this gift of inadequate food and powerfully performs this miracle through them. Jesus patiently 
involves these doubting disciples by asking them to distribute the food. And by doing this, Jesus wants to teach his disciples to trust in his power, not their own. Unfortunately for the disciples, they still weren't getting it. Why? Well, if we jump ahead to verse 51, Mark shows us the root of their issue. Verse 51, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. It almost sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? Particularly as God often uses that term for those who are opposed to him. But by nature, this is what we all are, including the disciples. Having hard hearts means we have an inability to acknowledge the truth about God. And the reason they rely on their own strength is because they need to truly believe that Jesus' identity is the Messiah and truly believe in his power and not just have it at a kind of head-level understanding. And it's the same with us. In those moments of weakness, of helplessness, of inadequacy, well, when we've got nothing else left to give, do we believe that Jesus is the powerful and sovereign Messiah? In those moments, is it just head knowledge that hasn't really impacted our hearts in those moments? The remedy, of course, is found at looking, in Je- at looking at Jesus. And Mark, help- Mark helps us to do that by intentionally hinting towards the writing of another famous shepherd, Did you notice it? In the Old Testament, where do we see a shepherd? Where do we see him feeding and satisfying his sheep? And where do we see uh, the sheep sit down on green grass? Any guesses? David. David, Psalm 23. Yes, exactly. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This is no coincidence. Mark is intentionally pointing out these tiny details to show us that Jesus is the good shepherd, the one who knows us, who feeds us, who leads us and protects us, the one who knows us in our weakness and has the power to provide what we need when we feel utterly helpless. And here, Jesus is calling his disciples to see that they need him to trust him in their sheep-like weakness. And today, Jesus is calling us to see that we need him, to trust him and rely on his power, not our own. And when we do, we see Jesus do something incredible. He takes our weakness and displays his strength through it. Using Paul's word in Words in 2 Corinthians 12, Jesus is saying to you today, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. The trouble is, we assume weakness is something to be avoided. And we'd rather God use our strengths, right? Looking at your own strengths and weaknesses, what would you rather God use it's your strengths right what we're good at 
but why is that? Well, it's because then we retain some level of control and security. It keeps things comfortable for us. Therefore, when weakness comes, we just want to get through it and regain some level of control. But God didn't design us to have ultimate control over our lives. Because human flourishing comes when we fully rely on him. And when is that most clearly displayed? When we're feeling strong? No. It's when we come to him aware of our utter weakness. Yet we react to Jesus like Romans, the Romans did to, the, to Mount Vesuvius. Now it made sense to run from Vesuvius because of its immense power um, and its immense power brought death. But Jesus' power, which is infinitely greater, brings life and provision. He is the good shepherd who takes our weakness and uses it to display his power through us. Jesus and our weakness are immensely compatible. It sounds completely counterintuitive, but it's true. So where are you feeling weak or inadequate at the moment, or even today? In your weakness, are you relying on Jesus or running from him? Yes, work is hard. Close relationships are hard. Parenting is hard. Doing life feeling tired, weak and hopeless is hard. But in those moments, remember who Jesus is and trust him. It doesn't mean he will fix the immediate issue or give us all the answers. But it does mean that he will give us the power to strength and strength to carry on. And sometimes he'll do extraordinary things through it. When we trust him, his power is displayed in our weakness. What's your reaction to that? If it's one of joy, praise God, that's right. Maybe it's something that you've only heard for the first time today. But maybe you hear that and it still feels unsatisfying. Well, this was the disciples' response too. Therefore, let's look very briefly at what Jesus needed to do next for them. Verse 45, look down at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Again, we see Jesus' compassion. He knows the disciples are still tired. So once again, he gets them in a boat and sends them, sends them away from the crowds. But this time, Jesus himself hangs back, firstly to dismiss the crowd and to pray. In verse 47, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Although some of them were experienced fishermen, again we see the disciples' weakness as they physically struggle against the wind and the waves. Jesus, on the shore, feels compassion again and goes out to them. How? Verse 48. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Wow. 
Now we see Jesus' power. Yes, he could have taken a boat. But if you're the creator of all natural physics, like we've already seen, you can basically do what you want, right? And rather amusingly, lots of commentators note that people have tried to explain this away, saying, oh, the water was frozen, or it was just an illusion. But that just doesn't add up, does it? Particularly as we read that there were multiple eyewitnesses. Verse 50, they all saw him. Mark stresses that. This means Jesus was, Jesus was completely adequate to walk out to them. And Mark almost makes it sound like it was just too easy for him when he says Jesus was about to pass by them. Like it, it's almost comical, as if Jesus was like, oh, hey, sorry, I didn't see you guys there. But we know that Jesus did see them. So why does Mark say this? Thinking back to our Old Testaments again, where do we find God passing by in front of someone? Back in Exodus 33, when Moses asked to see God's glory and God passes by before him. And the Lord said, I will cause my, all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Having power is one thing, but Mark intentionally uses the same word that Moses used because Jesus intended to show his disciples something even greater than his power. He wanted to show them his glory. However, he doesn't get that far. Why? Because of a case of mistaken identity. Last week, my four-year-old daughter, uh, Margot, got a dog onesie. After putting it on, she then wanted to show her younger brother. Now, sadly, Edward isn't a big fan of dogs. And he freaked out when he saw her. Because he, did, he didn't realise it was Margot. He just saw a dog and he just freaked out. Now, from the outside, from our perspective, it was actually quite amusing to watch. But then Margot, seeing Edward's fear, tried to comfort him. How? By saying, don't worry, it's me. She could see that he was scared because he didn't realise that it was her. He just thought it was a dog. And so she told him, it's me. Similarly, the disciples mistook Jesus' identity. And like Edward, they were overwhelmed with fear as a result. And from Jesus' perspective, he wasn't willing to show them his glory until they knew his identity. Until they knew who he was. Until they knew from whom this glory was coming from. So, like Margot, Jesus comforts his disciples by helping them see who he is. He yells over the wind and the rays, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And he climbs into the boat with them, and the wind dies down. And the disciples are completely amazed. It's tempting to think, surely the disciples understand Jesus' identity by now. After all that they've seen Jesus do, with the loaves, the fish, the walking on the water, the calming the storm again... But as we've already talked about, Mark then notes that fear isn't stopping them from seeing who Jesus really is. But it's their hard hearts. And no amount of loaves or storms is able to open their hearts to it either. And it's the same for us. 
Our hardness of heart prevents us from seeing Jesus' true power and identity. That's why when we feel weak, we're slow to trust him. So we need God's help. And how does he help? How does he soften our hearts when we feel weak? In those moments, how can we see his identity and trust in his power? Thinking back to the previous miracle, as Jesus broke the loaves, he knew a time was coming when his body would be broken. A time where he would set aside his power and make himself weak and experience excruciating fear and terror by willingly dying on the cross in our place. He knew that he was the only one adequate and powerful enough to pay the price for our sin, then rise again three days later. Why did he do it? So that through his spirit, we can know him. That we can be known by him, led by him, fed by him, protected by him, loved by him. And when we see Jesus' love and power in this way, it changes everything. This is where our confidence comes from. And it certainly changed everything for the disciples. Isn't it encouraging that Jesus took this group of weak and fearful men and entrusted them, not just with bread and fish, but to establish his church and globally reach the nations? That is an impossible task. And they would have felt weak and afraid. But in those moments, they trusted Jesus. And this room, full of people, is evidence that Jesus' power was displayed through their weakness. Do you know that power in your life? Thinking back to when you feel most weak and inadequate... What are you afraid of? Failure? Embarrassment? Not being able to just carry on? Yes, weakness and fear are very, very real. And Jesus doesn't deny that. And the Christian life will be full of it. But in those moments, Jesus isn't asking you to be strong. He's asking you to trust him. In those moments, whether... You're hearing this for the first time or the hundredth time. He is saying to us, you can trust me. I've already displayed my power to you, so you don't need to be afraid of your weakness. In your weakness. And when you trust me, I am capable of taking your weakness to do extraordinary things. Because it's my power, not yours. So don't harden your heart. Give me your weakness. Give me your life. Don't be afraid. Take courage and trust me. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have displayed your power in Jesus. Thank you that your power is made perfect in our weakness. So we pray by your spirit that you will help us see that more clearly. We thank you that in our darkness, we are not forsaken because you are always by by our side. Father, please help us now to respond and sing boldly.
in weakness and rejoicing because in our need, your power is displayed. In Jesus' name, amen.